Madana Mohana Murari Madana Mohana Murari Namaste and welcome. So this is the fifth part in the series on understanding bhakti, which is the culmination of all yoga pra uh, practice. So we have spoken about the fact that the purpose of bhakti is to bring one to the path platform of perfect spiritual love, love for God. And the question that would naturally arise probably in most of our minds is how then do I develop love for God? All, all yoga practice should be understood or different paths of yoga, different practices of yoga should be understood that what they are trying to, or what they are presenting is the need to develop a personal practice. It is our personal practice, meaning our day-to-day -day engagement that is going to bring success on this path as it is with almost anything else in life. One's personal practice is what will bring about the internal change and the change of our consciousness. And so this adopting a yoga lifestyle, adopting a yoga practice should be seen as a lifelong commitment or a lifelong dedication. It's not just something that you do on the side and then live in another world or another state of consciousness. If one wants to truly become happy and free from the nature of suffering that exists within the material world and material existence, mm -hmm. then it requires a complete transformation, a complete change of consciousness. So the process for undertaking this is referred to in yoga as sadhana. Sadhana um, has a number of different meanings in, in Sanskrit. And some of these meanings will probably help us to understand the, what has been referred to. So uh, as with most Sanskrit words, they can be used in a number of different ways. There is this underlying meaning to things. But it can mean something as such as leading straight towards a goal or to a goal. Sadhana can also be used in reference to subduing a disease or a healing process or a cure. Can, it can be used in this way. Also, 
to um, bring about or to carry out or to an accomplishment. It can be used in these ways. So in the field of yoga, it refers to regulating principles that one lives by. This word is, is like really important and interesting. Regulating. If we think of what is a regulator, I think a good way to look at it is like, you know, when you have a, a gas cylinder and then they've attached to the top of it a regulator with a hose that goes to like a stove or an oven or something. What does a regulator do? It, it maintains a consistency of pressure. There's an enormous pressure inside the cylinder. And if you just opened that, everything would rush out in an almost explosive force. So the regulator, what it does is makes it so that there is a consistency in things. And so the term regulative principles or living a regulated life is also in, captured by, by Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita when he says one should not eat too much nor eat too little, um, <clears throat> sleep too much or sleep too little, and gave a, a number of different examples of how to maintain a regulated life. So a regulated life means that there is an acceptance of the reality that I am embodied, I'm, I'm inside this body, I'm living in this world, that there are responsibilities and duties attached to that. But I should not be excessive in things that I do, one way or, or the other. And when one lives in a regulated way, following spiritual principles, in the, uh, this is referred to as in the Bhagavad Gita as the regulative principles of freedom. And that's quite astonishing, this idea, mm -hmm. because most people have adopted the materialistic idea that freedom means being able to do anything I want whenever I want and not feeling guilt, not having anybody stop me. I should be free to do everything. But actually, that description of freedom is the description of animal life. This is the way animals live. And what has not been recognized is you cannot escape the consequences of your actions. You are free to do whatever you want, but you must accept the consequences of all action, the effect that it will have on your consciousness, the karmic fruit that it will bring and the way that will be played out in your life. So such an idea of freedom is actually quite childish or immature. I don't say that to try and demean anyone, but that's a practical reality. We're not looking at things in a very mature way. So regulative principles actually free a person from material entanglement and suffering. One truly becomes free. If I am just doing anything I want, whenever I want, just following all desires, I am not free. I'm enslaved, enslaved by my passions and will have to accept the consequences of that. 
So when one engages or adopts a sadhana, these regulative practices, it is advised in the Vedas and all yogic teaching that one should do this under the guidance of a qualified, I'm, I'm stressing the word qualified, qualified guru or a spiritual teacher. This will accelerate someone's advancement in, in spiritual life. If we look at the Ashtanga Yoga process, which some people are familiar with, the very two branches or limbs of this eightfold process involve the adoption of these regulative principles. And this is dealing with what is called the Yama Niyama. So these were principles that one lived by and was guided by. And sadhana goes further in that it builds a time and a practice where one engages in specific spiritual activity every day to bring about this purification and, and transformation. Now something extraordinary in relation to, to sadhana as it is practiced in relation to the path of bhakti, bhakti yoga. In all other yoga paths, the means and the end are different. So I adopt a practice to bring me to a certain state or condition where I then may or may not give up that practice. But what I'm after is an end goal. And my sadhana is the means to get me there. Bhakti is unique amongst all of the yoga paths in that what is in the beginning the means also becomes the end. So this will become maybe a little bit clarified as we proceed. Um, but I'll just state that the reason it is like this is because what we are talking about is the awakening of the natural function of the soul itself, the actual um, function, the natural function of all living beings, which is to love and to serve. And so when one engages this initially in the process of bhakti, and this process is called our sadhana, sadhana bhakti, it gradually brings one to this platform of what is called prema bhakti, where one experiences the full-blown experience of, of a deep immersion in a transcendental mood of love for the Supreme. In this condition, the activities don't change, but the consciousness changes. And it becomes now a natural outpouring of the soul itself. 
So this is an extraordinary feature um, related to, to bhakti. So when we speak of bhakti yoga or the path of devotion, it begins, of course, with this process of, of sadhana. Now, if we look at the Vedas since the beginning of time, the process of sadhana, and what, what I will do here is just try to give you in the short time that we've allocated for this talk, an overview. We are not going to get into the details of how one actually executes. This is not a step-by-step. -step. It is providing an overview to the system or the process of sadhana bhakti. So, since time immemorial, it has been recorded that there were nine specific practices that form part of this path of bhakti. In Sanskrit, um, it's referred to as sravanam, kirtanam, vishnu, smaranam, padda, sevanam, achanam, vandanam, dasham, sakyam, this speaks to nine specific categories of activity that can be engaged in to awaken our natural spiritual function as an eternal lover and servant of God. It begins with the process of hearing. And the second process is the process of chanting or speaking or glorifying. It moves to remembrance, a deep absorption and meditation upon um, that which is fully transcendental. And here we're talking about in relation to the personal feature of God things related to his transcendental glories, descriptions of his personality, the nature of the loving exchanges and activities in which he engages in. So since time immemorial, as I've stated, this was the central or foundational practices of, of the process of bhakti. But we live in a very unique time. The age in which we currently live is categorized as being the age of quarrel and confusion. It's not good news. We have this amazing flowering of technological development. And now everybody's talking about the outrageous effect that it is having upon people in terms of mental health, in terms of happiness, and just all kinds of things. It's astonishing what is now being, you know, revealed. People, the problem is we've become so unintelligent in that we've become so addicted to certain ways of living that even though they are increasing our unhappiness 
and everybody must admit, because there's all the evidence to support it, we live in a time, an epidemic, an epidemic of unhappiness, of depression. It's become so prominent. Suicide, the figures are just going through the roof. And these are all symptoms of a larger social disorder or disease. And it's epitomized in the scriptures, in the Vedic scriptures, as being during this age, as being an age of quarrel and confusion. This inability to see with great clarity. But the recommendation is, and we will speak about this maybe in the next talk a little bit more, that during this period in time, the hearing and the chanting of sacred sounds or mantra, or what's also referred to as names of the Supreme or names of God, is the foundational practice for one wanting to undertake or follow this path of devotion, bhakti, bhakti yoga. And amongst all of the activities to do with um, repeating or chanting or singing these transcendental sounds, it is the performance of this activity in a group that has a unique spiritual potency and forms the core of the um, sadhana or the practices of, of bhakti. Another thing that's really um, critically important in this path is to developing a mood of humility and a mood of service. These are central to bhakti. And this mood of humility and service should be directed towards the Supreme and more specifically to the personal feature of God and also to all of his children, all other beings. In the Bhagavad Gita, there are some really um, wonderful directions that are offered to make it so that a person may learn how to develop a sadhana, a personal practice related to bhakti. In the um, Bhagavad Gita, uh, ninth chapter, there are two verses, verse 26 and 27, where Krishna says, if one offers me with love and devotion, a leaf, a flower, fruit, a little water, I will accept it. O son of Kunti, all that you do, not most or some, all that you do, all that you eat, all that you offer and give away, 
as well as all austerities that you may perform, should be done as an offering to me. So a really important part of this sadhana process in relation to the path of bhakti, it's not just about like allocating, okay, from this time to this time, I'm going to perhaps meditate. And then from this time to this time, I'm doing whatever, something else. And then later from this time to this time, I will try to maybe read, you know, some spiritual literature or contemplate upon some direction. Then I'm off something else. And it's not just a question of allocating little pieces of your life to a spiritual undertaking, but coming to the platform of learning how to dovetail your entire life as a process of spiritual undertaking. Um, I don't know if you have seen um, an earlier series where we spoke about um, karma and karma yoga, where we dealt with this in, in, in quite a bit of detail and might benefit you to um, uh, visit that and, and, and take a look at it. But this idea of learning how to dovetail one's life in this world as part of a spiritual practice, dovetail it with the will of the Supreme of God. When one attempts to do this, what it does is it takes action action which normally binds one to this world and now applies it as a cure, a cure to the material disease, a cure to material suffering, material entanglement. And what we're doing is learning to connect every part of our life with some higher and transcendental purpose. It's about, this is the ultimate in living a purposeful life. You know, people talk about living a purposeful life. This is the ultimate application of living a purposeful life where every part of your life is performed as an offering to the Lord. I'll just read another couple of verses because they really um, are, are extremely inspiring for a person, an aspirant on the path of bhakti, um, from the 10th chapter, to those who are constantly devoted and worship me with love, I give the understanding by which they can come to me. I mean, this is a profound spiritual principle, and it's another subject that we can probably talk about in the future about the two different types of spiritual paths or processes being an ascending process where I try to attain some perfection by my endeavor, by my personal qualification, by my goodness, all of these things. And the descending process where I realize that I am unworthy. This is known as the path of revelation, where I endeavor, instead of my endeavor to try and see God, my endeavor 
is to be seen by him. This is a profound spiritual principle where I begin to live my life in such a way that I attract the Supreme. I attract the Lord. And in his pleasure with me, he gradually and increasingly reveals himself and provides me with all of the tools and everything I need to come to that transcendental platform. Being freed from attachment, fear, and anger, being fully absorbed in me and taking refuge in me, many persons in the past became purified by knowledge of me, and thus they all attained transcendental love for me. So these are the, some of the focal principles in this uh, process of sadhana bhakti. We should also understand and appreciate we don't live in a vacuum. We live in the association of others. How we see this world and how we see others are tremendously influenced by our spiritual ignorance or spiritual realization. The path of bhakti promotes the equality of all and love for all others. This is an actual panacea to the tremendous divisiveness that we see in the world today, which is a product of ignorance. That ignorance is the idea that I am a bodily label or I am a desire because my mind has a certain type of desire or my body looks a certain way or my body is affiliated with a political party or something. I engage in enormous divisiveness and, and filled with anger and being upset and pushing back and hating or fighting or reacting to others on the basis of ignorance, what is purely ignorance. Seeing the equality of all, feeling respect and better compassion and love for all, even those who position themselves as my enemy, is a central and important feature of all spiritual development. When a person is not spiritually developed, they feel hate towards some, attraction towards others. They are pleased with some and angry at others. This is a product of ignorance, not of enlightenment. So in the Bhagavad Gita, in the sixth chapter, the ninth verse, it states that a person is said to be still further advanced when he regards all, the honest well-wisher, a friend and enemy, the envious, the pious, the sinner, and those who are indifferent and impartial. He sees all with an 
equal mind. So this is a characteristic of spiritual advancement. And the opposite is true. When I make these distinctions and respond on the basis of these distinctions, it is a product, it is a symptom of a lack of spiritual enlightenment and understanding. Then in another verse, it states, he is a perfect yogi who, by comparison with his own self, sees the true equality of all beings, both in their happiness and distress, O Arjuna. So the Bhagavad Gita is really a, a, a wonderful um, foundational text for the path of devotion for bhakti. Many different yoga processes are described and addressed within the context of the Bhagavad Gita. But there is this this focus and there is a very clear conclusion. In the end of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says to Arjuna, always think of me, become my devotee. Worship me and offer homage unto me. Thus you will come to me without fail. I promise you this because you are my very dear friend. And then in the next verse, a very famous verse, abandon all varieties of dharma and just surrender unto me. I shall deliver you from all sinful reaction. Do not fear. So sometimes this word dharma has been uh, translated as religion or religious faith. But here in the Bhagavad Gita, and people understand that or misunderstand it in so many different ways. But in the Bhagavad Gita, it is referencing all of the different processes of spiritual cultivation that are mentioned, jnana, karma, sankhya, you know, there were, there, and raja yoga, they were mentioned within the, in the Gita. And within that context, Krishna is saying that one should abandon all the varieties of dharma or spiritual or religious practice and just surrender unto me. This term, surrender unto me, is not as many people would think. Sometimes we see within Christianity, for example, oh, I surrendered to Jesus. And then, of course, I go on to live my materialistic life. I'm not saying everybody does that, but we do see that as being a feature. You know, what does surrendering mean? Surrendering actually means a total spiritual transformation and a complete 180 away from self-centeredness and selfishness. It's about me and even about God serving me to a position of utter selflessness where my only concern is for the object of of my love. So what we've discussed um, here and actually in this whole series, it's really only an introduction to bhakti. 
which is of course one of the most wonderful paths of, of spiritual enlightenment or the most wonderful path of spiritual enlightenment. It is not um, that I have actually gone through a step-by-step uh, description of what we need to do. We are just looking at things as an overview. But I will close um, the discussion today or the talk today with a couple of verses also from the Bhagavad Gita to reflect upon. Bhakti is often translated as devotional service. But we sometimes have a tendency to use these words without really considering what they are attempting to fully capture. We are talking about the nature of the soul itself, the natural function, that when one becomes so steeped in a mood of love, one engages in this continuous and uninterrupted attempt to please the object of my love. To seeing God pleased becomes the object of my life. It's not what I'm getting out of it. It's relishing, reveling in his pleasure. And this is what it means, this term devotional services, this extraordinary state of consciousness. So in the eighth chapter, it says a person who accepts the path of devotion or devotional service, bhakti, is not bereft of the results derived from studying the Vedas, performing austere sacrifice, giving in charity, pursuing philosophical and fruitive activities. At the end, he reaches the supreme destination or abode. When one engages in this process, they are not cut off from the benefits from any other spiritual process or path of yoga. And then finally, he who follows this imperishable path of devotion and who completely engages himself with faith, making me the supreme goal, is very very dear to me. So as I mentioned before, you know, it is not about my attempt to know and to see God. It should be about my attempt to become known or seen by Him. And here Krishna describes how one becomes very, very dear. And it is through this undertaking, through the spiritual process that in the beginning is like regulative principles, things I do to achieve something. But as one becomes increasingly purified and one's love begins to spontaneously manifest from within the heart, one cannot give up these activities because they are centered on and focused upon pleasing God, which becomes my eternal focus.
So I would like to thank you very much. Um, in the next talk, I wanted to talk a little bit about a um, great transcendental personality who is actually responsible for the tremendous um, I guess I can use the word explosion, the growth, the spreading of, of the importance of bhakti in the last few centuries. And the person who has been categorized as the um, originator of the modern, uh, what I'll call the modern kirtan movement. So uh, if you join us in the next talk, we will explore this. I would like to invite you to um, engage in this kirtan meditation. We'll be chanting the um, mantra Haribol Nitaigur. Thank you very much.
Oh, 